0: Hey there, safety enthusiasts. This is Tim Ludwig from SafetyDoc.com. It's good to have you here. Welcome to Insights into Your Safety Culture podcast, which is simulcast as a blog on SafetyDoc.com. Join us on Safety-Doc.com for 30 years of research, stories, videos, books, and blogs, all to get your safety culture fix. Now let's get to it. Be the change you want to see. In this time of social discussion and change, I'd like to recount an event that happened to me when I first started my work in South Africa 10 years ago. I had been warmly welcomed to South Africa. We were there to work with a mining construction company who wanted to solve their safety challenge. The immensity of this challenge hit us on our day off while we were trying to fight off our jet lag. You see, we took a tour of Soweto outside Johannesburg. Soweto, to remind you, is where a student uprising in my youth and the deadly crackdown by the white police enraged the world and marked the beginning of the end of apartheid. I remember wearing black and white armbands in college to protest apartheid, but when I found myself face-to-face with the actual peoples, the places, and the cultures of South Africa, I knew the time had come to go beyond a youthful ideal. I was humbled to be training dedicated people who would then go to their construction sites throughout Africa— and help put into place the processes and the principles of behavioral safety toward a culture of actively caring. I had Zulus, Afrikaans, folks of British and other European descents, Zimbabweans, and others of the great African diversity in the room with me in the training session, from executives all the way through construction laborers. While we were discussing the concept of actively caring, I was pulled aside during a break and told, You must understand, we are not a caring culture. That was said to me by one of the executives. I refused to believe his statement. Yes, in the recent history, they treated each other with less than human respect. And yes, There was vigilante violence on all sides during the chaotic times as apartheid fell. But here, in this room, was the example of people who volunteered to make a difference. There was a younger generation, maybe too young to remember, working for a promise of a middle-class life that was denied their parents. They sat next to Afrikaans farmers and engineers and managers and safety professionals, They all spoke at least, each of them, six languages. Some spoke up to 11 because they had to have this many languages in this diverse land. I, on the other hand, am from the United States. I spoke only one. In this room, there was an ex-police officer who had to enforce apartheid, sitting right next to a man named Artwell, who had been part of the political resistance to apartheid. Hartwell, who has become one of my personal heroes, had been hunted, beaten, and left for dead by the vigilantes, many of whom were ex-police. In this room was the promise of Africa. You know, we gotta practice what we preach. After a week of, of training there in South Africa, my wife and I, and we were ready for a weekend break. One of the company executives, a British descendant of Means, a man with an exquisitely manicured beard, I must add, well, he offered to take us to the Kruger Reserve for a photo safari. And this is something everybody should do in their life. We uh, met his wife, a woman of impeccable taste and endless charm, and drove to their house, perched on top of a hill in a town called Nilsprit. Like all other dwellings, this, ta- this house had a 12-foot fence, with barbed wire surrounding it. We dressed in our finest and went to their favorite restaurant where the owner met us at the door and prepared a special table for us in the wine cellar. (laughs) I was feeling quite hoity-toity and started acting like I knew about the different cheeses that were presented to us and even (laughs) myself drinking wine with my pinky up. Oh boy, I had a lot of gratitude, however, toward our host and was trying to make a good impression. On our drive back to their house, That night, my wife and I sat in their back seat of their Mercedes and we were engaged in pleasant conversation when the car slightly uh, dropped slightly on my side and then jolted with a loud BAM. (laughs) The executive driving the car let out a grunt of disgust and started talking about how South Africa was a first world country with a third world underbelly and that huge pothole that we just hit was a good example. I was commiserating with their plight and said, oh, no, that's too bad and, and kept going on like that when my wife, sitting next to me, said, we need to do something about that pothole. Somebody else will hit it. And I'm embarrassed to say I, I leaned over to her and fired a shh under my breath. Now, don't ever, ever do that to your wife. So she continued even louder. Seriously. Seriously. The next car coming along could destroy a wheel and and lose control and somebody could get hurt. And then came the truth. She said, Tim, you just spent the whole week talking about actively caring and you won't do something? And the executive wife now jumped in with her formal bridge accent, yes, yes, we must do something to help. We absolutely must. And the executive now flustered, asked quietly, what would you have me do? And by this point, (laughs) my my head... It was in my hands. I was totally embarrassed. This is Tim breaking into this podcast to tell you about my book, Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture. A manager finds himself on top of a stepladder. A woman removes the guard to her machine. A worker is not wearing her safety glasses in the plant. A rustabout uses a wrong size clamp instead of retrieving the right tool. A supervisor teaches a new worker to take a shortcut. A mechanic climbs on top of an active machine to find the oil leak. What? Why do these folks do these things? Is it because they're stupid? We'll find out. Read or listen to the first chapter of Dysfunctional Practices on SafetyDoc.com. Dysfunctional Practices available now on Amazon and Lulu.com. And now, back to our podcast. His wife instructed him to pull over to a lot that had some brush all around it. They must have cleared out the brush in anticipating some construction. We must take down those branches and make a barrier in front of the hole so oncoming traffic can see it and avoid it. So I complied silently. We pulled over. I opened the door. I gathered a number of large branches and held them outside my open window as we drove back to the big hole in the road. I was embarrassed, wet, had dirt on my nice clothes, and and in quite an awkward position. But I knew she was right. I had not practiced what I preached. I didn't walk to talk. She was the model of the principles I had come to teach, but I ended up being the student. Soon enough, I was experiencing the natural reinforcement of doing something good. In a flurry of excitement, we put up the branches in front of the hole with broad smiles and hugs with the knowledge that we had helped others that we didn't even know we helped them avoid that hazard. Maybe saved a life. Because we must. After the weekend excursion in South Africa, my wife and I took an early flight to the Kalahari Desert in the Northern Cape to continue the training at one of their bigger construction sites. At the end of the day, we toured the site and saw a large number of San, the local Aboriginal people of the area whose rich culture dates back many, many thousands of years. They had gained employment in the different crafts because of a national law in South Africa and in many Africa countries requiring companies and their contractors to hire at least 50% of their workforce from the local populations. Since mine tended to be in rural rural areas, this meant that the local population consisted of sustenance farmers uh, who may be illiterate and poor with little to no industrial experience, who now found themselves on an industrial construction site. Many of the supervisors I talked to did not speak very highly of the local population because of the perception that their supposed ignorance led to injuries." After we toured the mining construction site, I asked the executive who was taking me around to, to take me to their mining camp. I'd been around the world, I've stayed in mining camps, and they were of special interest to me, you know, to, to see where people lived and what kind of culture was there. He complied, he, he complied and he added, you know, you should see this too. The mining camp was about 15 kilometers from the, from the town, like many other I've seen in my travels to remote mining sites. And there was the normal prefabricated units set up in rows with service facilities, some recreation and a mess hall. But in this case, it was all surrounded by a very tall fence. But next to this camp was a reminder that this site was so much more than a a badly needed job for the members of the community. And that safety was so much more than a set of rules. You see... A shanty town had risen up. It was twice the size of the camp it sat next to, and it was full of poverty and filth. The executive explained, well, the camp provides an economy of sorts. We get these all over Africa because those working at the construction sites from the local population, you know, they get they get clothing to work in and food at these camps, and they distribute food and toilet paper to their relatives and friends through the fence. The conditions are horrible in these makeshift towns. He pointed to the cardboard and corrugated metal shacks. There's hunger, crime, and rapes. So they also look to the camps for security. I was touched deeply by this and and frankly troubled too. But I was also hopeful. This scene caused me to think back to the room I was training with at the beginning and throughout my time in South Africa, then and over the next decade, these rooms filled with promise to the people in them, the people like Artwell and the others who are committed to helping these very people. You see, the company hosting us and many others in the industry employ thousands upon thousands of people in these rural areas throughout Africa to build their mining facilities. If we teach safe practices and concepts like actively caring in this company, in this industry, the largest industry in Africa, then the reach into these peoples, their families and communities, but be profound. Folks, change the world. I'd like to, but I know it starts with me. And it starts with you, wherever you're at. I'd like to end with a quote from one of my heroes, Nelson Mandela. As I have said, the first thing is to be honest with yourself. You can never have an impact on society if you have not changed yourself. Peace, folks. This podcast is a production of safetydoc.com and is copyrighted by Timothy Ludwig, Ph.D. All rights reserved. For those small doses of inspiration, visit safetydoc.com. If you would like Dr. Ludwig to speak at your corporate or society safety function, simply use the contact link on safetydoc.com. Thanks for listening.